Hello, and welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the ups and downs of the creative process and how to keep it moving. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. I am a writer, singer, improv comedy newbie, science fiction geek, and creativity coach who loves helping right-brained folks get unstuck. I am so excited to be coming to you with interviews and coaching calls to show you the depth and breadth both of creative pursuits and creative people, to give you some insight into their experiences, and to inspire you. Today, I'm talking to Katie Rose Bai, a well-being teacher and reinvention mentor whose curiosity led her to earn degrees in psychology and neuroscience on her quest to understand everything she can about what makes people tick. She now uses what she's learned to help her clients reinvent themselves without having to go through a dramatic or even traumatic transition process. Our wide-ranging conversation covers everything from how awareness and willpower work to how quantum mechanics may explain energy healing and a whole lot in between. Katie Rose, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So I'm, I'm curious because that's the word of the day here, to um, to hear your story, because I know you've done a lot of different things. So fill me in. <laughs> Where should I start? Um, um, well, how did, how did you get started with what you do now? Let's start there. Okay, so um, I'm Katie Rose. I'm a reinvention and well-being teacher is kind of the phrase I tend to use now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I help sort of fierce men and women to reinvent who they are without burning everything to the ground. <laughs> That's a so it's piece. basically you don't need to take an eat, pray, love approach to reinvent yourself. Mm-hmm. And I say that as someone who loved that book, but mm-hmm. equally found it wasn't for me in right. terms of that. Approach. So I sort of use neuroscience, coaching and cognitive strategies to kind of help people to, to harness that inner fire, to feel inspired, curious capable of changing their world so that's just my little summary of what I do because I'm aware you may not know and it's been quite a long journey in that I actually started trying to help people in 2011 Mm -hmm. I had my first website and my first blog and things like that and then sort of went into day jobs and things like that and then sort of moved back into running my own business again um, in 2017 so it's kind of moved throughout time Mm -hmm. but the concept is the same I believe that all of humans are, are more capable than we realize I believe we should be taught certain things in school life skills like managing our emotions mm-hmm. understanding our curiosity being able to read that in a compass um so yeah it basically it started with self-help and it's well taken me through three degrees and I'm, I'm just one of those people who has to know how the world works mm-hmm. so so it started with self-help. That's interesting. Yeah. So um, I was 12 when I bought Neurolinguistic Programming for Dummies <laughs> with my birthday money. And that was my sort of foray into, I guess I, I always felt kind of broken. I always felt like there was something missing, something mm-hmm. wrong. Um, my family aren't particularly nerdy, and I am. Okay. I it's probably where that really started, but I think it's quite common these days, particularly my generation in terms of millennials, to have that sense of not feeling enough. Mm-hmm. And all the things we were taught as children, oh, we'll have a job, you'll steady job for 40 years and buy a house and get married. and da-da. Yeah. None of that stability exists anymore. Mm-hmm. So I think that I just started that nice identity crisis a bit early. 
Yeah, 12 is an interesting age even to have heard of neurolinguistic programming, much <laughs> less to be buying the book. <laughs> I don't know if I'd heard of it before the book was, was before I saw it in the bookshop. But yeah, I, I practically lived in the bookshops. And then when I was 18, I bought Paul McKenna's Change Your Life in Seven Days. Okay. Or in fact, in fact, I asked for it. My best friend took me into a bookshop and said, I'll buy you any book for your birthday. What do you want? And that's the one I picked. And I kind of noticed as I look back, hmm, there seems to be this theme going through my life. Mm-hmm. That I don't feel enough that I want to be a better person, that I want to reach this potential. That thing, I'm, I'm very much a self-improver. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's where mine started. And then it just led me to trying to understand the world. So I did a bachelor's in psychology. I did a master's in cognitive neuroscience. Um, we were allowed to pick... Um, any subject as our kind of filler subject. So mm-hmm. I picked quantum mechanics, which is part of <laughs> because physics. Because of course you do. <laughs> because I want to understand how the world works. I want to understand how atoms and molecules make up energy right. that then is the same energy that our brain is made of. So, yeah, I'm just a big nerd, really. <laughs> totally understand. <laughs> so my first question is, did the second book live up to its title? Did it change your life in seven days? No. Uh, <laughs> although it came with a like hypnotherapy CD that I did not get very far into. Okay. So I feel it's a disservice to say no in that I didn't do the work for a lot Fair of it enough. at that point. Um, but yeah, no, I think it, it just made it. What it did do is made me realize that a lot of the self-help stuff doesn't have the quick fix answers that it promises. Yeah. And where I come from now, I very much meld the kind of spiritual, scientific and self-help together. Mm-hmm. So because I've had that experience of self-help, I've then got the neuroscience and psychology. Um, I'm actually trained in cognitive therapy as well, um, which was all just so I could understand myself and my brain and, and, mm-hmm. and sort of fix myself using my nice, using the air quotes. Right. Um, that's where that kind of drive came from. But actually realizing that through all the books I've read, none of them have the answer because they all just take one tiny strand yeah I think we need a much more holistic view which I guess is why I now do what I do now that's why I started Rooted Reinvention to be like you don't have to completely throw everything away Mm -hmm. to be a better self and actually you probably have all the tools you just aren't using them all together and probably you don't even know what they are even though you have them yeah that's because we're not we're not taught reflection we're not taught discernment we're not taught any of these kind of skills I feel we could be taught in schools mm-hmm. to question things and go, do I actually want this? Do I like this? How do I feel when I do this? Like, they're quite basic questions, but we don't ask them. They are. And yet, can you imagine if you asked questions like that in the average school? You know, I mean, I can just having having been a teacher, and I say this with great respect for my fellow teachers, but I mean, school is still an institution and the institution wants to be in charge. And as soon as you start asking questions like that, those people get very scared because chaos could ensue. Yeah, we yeah. If we teach them those kind of skills, they might actually question everything we do. Yes. Everything our society is built on. Yeah, so I completely appreciate that from their point of view. And they've got a business to run. Um, Obviously, I'm in the UK, so it's a slightly different Mm -hmm. thing. But we've just elected a bunch of new people or same people again. So, again, we're going to end up with another five years of them cutting the education budgets and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I can't imagine that that's going to change anytime soon. Yeah, it's not (laughs) probably going to help. But, but yeah, I am. I'm reminded of, of a 
It was probably just an intro to a Robert Fulgham book, you know, the guy who wrote All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten, where he talked about how he liked to wear buttons that said opposing things. And one of the pairings was, trust me, I'm a teacher, and question authority before authority questions you. So... Yeah, I think okay with that one. <laughs> I know. I think he he would have been an interesting person to talk to because I think actually it you know fits into what you're saying. I think he would have appreciated all of that. So, as you were you know going through all of the degree programs and everything, what did what did you put together that was unexpected? Because I just know there has to be something, probably more than one something. For me, it was very much that we this idea of holistic this mm-hmm. idea of treating things as the whole and how we don't do it so the psychology degree was very much based around theories that came about in the 1950s so they were still teaching um kind of attach uh bulby's attachments like attachment as they need their mother it can't be any other caregiver mm. um for there to be a strong attachment and we now know that's not the case we've but we're still being taught it in right. the 2010s we were still being taught it um, in university, which I always thought was interesting. And then moving on to the neuroscience is a very medical model of where you treat this kind of neurological brain condition with medication that does this um, or, or this cognitive therapy that's evidence based or the two together. And actually looking at what we really know, if we actually look into the studies. So I am someone who reads quite a few kind of um, scientific journals and that is mm-hmm. my spare time because why not sure um and we know things like the amount of movement and exercise we get per day can minimize our chances of depression and anxiety we know that our diet has a massive impact um we know that actually adverse childhood experiences can predict things like heart disease 50 years down the line which is amazing like there's so many i mean that particular study is quite reductionist and i have a lot of issues with it but the general (laughs) gist of it is i guess that we know so much and we're not, it's not getting out into the public domain. Mm-hmm. It's not getting out. I keep hearing the word resilience these days. I first started studying resilience in 20, 2008. Um, and the idea that it's suddenly a buzzword, um, I keep hearing epigenetics, which is the idea that our genetics, our genes get switched on and off based on our environment. Mm-hmm. So if you're particularly tall and you get picked for the basketball team, then that's very different from, you know, you could have, this, you could have identical twins in terms of the genes, but actually the environment plays a part in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I'm hearing all this sort of vaguely being mentioned in like staff trainings at my day job and stuff now. And they don't really understand people giving the talk, giving the training, don't really understand that bit, but they've been told to put right. it in. And they're saying it's this brand new thing. And I'm like, epigenetics was discovered in the 90s. Like, <laughs> we're coming up to 2020 now. <laughs> it's like 30 years old. So yeah. I think for me, the studying was very much no one knows this and we don't know how to put it together and we don't know how to use it. Those mm-hmm. are, I guess, my three kind of steps I took as I was, as I was learning. So how did it did it come together for you in terms of figuring out how to understand yourself since that was your goal? I think I could probably write a couple of books on that. Um, <laughs> so I guess for me, for me, it was that understanding of where where the thoughts about needing to be fixed came from. Mm-hmm. Whether this drive that I have, this curiosity, I guess, is something wrong with me mm-hmm. because of the, some of the messages I was given. Well, you know, children seem not heard and you don't ask questions Ugh. and all that kind of stuff was still around <laughs> when mm-hmm. I was young. Um, and I think 
undoing a lot of things or even just being aware. So the first step I always say is awareness. So if you know that, oh, the reason I do this or the reason I freeze up at this or the reason I'm triggered by this is because of this is how I was brought up, because I associate it as a threat, because the fight or flight response kicks in. I think knowing all the different kind of ways that humanity has existed, has evolved and the way that our brains and bodies work Mm -hmm. and then look at what I've tried in terms of the self-help books and the techniques and seeing what did and didn't work for me, I'm able to know why things didn't work. So um, I'm trying to think of like one simple example, but it all does kind of amalgamate after a while. But it is that sense of understanding and knowing yourself means that you're able to make better choices, make better decisions. And mm-hmm. I say better, I'm not saying perfect. Like I had biscuits after dinner tonight because I wanted chocolate. So <laughs> I'm not... But I also know that eating healthily and will have an impact on things. I know that if I look at the, how many calories are in that biscuit, I will feel more full than if I didn't. Because studies have shown us that if we think something really? is low fat, we feel less full afterwards, even if the thing is the same. So you literally need to. Wow. They, did a, they did a study with milk. I think it was milkshakes or something, and they called one like low fat light mm-hmm. a milkshake, and the other one delicious, deluxe, creamy. Thing. they were exactly the same thing and they did it with hundreds of people and then they got asked people to rate how full they felt and how much more they wanted some more of it and things like soup bowls if they thought it was the light soup and then they silent like secretly refilled the bowls they ate 50 percent more wow and it's literally if you know that if you tell your brain this is 500 calories this is a quarter of my daily consumption Mm -hmm. you are more likely to feel fuller afterwards than if you just eat that chocolate bar thinking oh it's a chocolate bar that's amazing so i wish i could say that for every little well i think over time eventually we'll have something like that for every little concept and habit building there Mm -hmm. is but yeah so i think it's it's there's so much we don't know that is simple that is easy to understand that is something we can share Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I don't see why they couldn't share that one in schools. That one doesn't get you to question the authority. <laughs> really? Really? That's, that's just amazing to me. And yet it makes sense to me. You know, I mean, having, having gone through all of, you know, the, the low fat craze in the nineties and, and, you know, where it's like sugar it up, but don't have any fat, you know, which is seems completely insane to me now. It's like, yeah, yeah, you know, because everybody just sits down with, you know, a giant bag of whatever and says, but there's no fat in it. So it's okay. I can eat the whole thing and it's not a problem and there's nothing in this. And, ooh, and particularly things like obviously advertising is based on psychology. Mm -hmm. So even I have even done a little bit of research around advertising because that allows me to help understand how they're tricking us, how they're getting through to us. You know, Mm -hmm. as I say, I still still eat my chocolate biscuits, even though shouldn't, whatever. Um, But yeah, so if it's if it's no added sugar, then it just means they've they've put more things in. They've got enough ingredients in there that they've there's no added sugar, but honey's included because it's not added. Mm -hmm. The sugar's part of the honey. We haven't added the sugar. Oh, that is so, so sneaky. Yeah. And low fat usually means they've added more sugar. So mm-hmm. if, you, if it just says low fat, you can bet that the the full fat version will have less sugar in it because that's how they manage to get the consistency to work is that they just down the fat and up the sugar. Oh. Ugh. <laughs> I feel like we no, can not- just 
have an entire conversation about this if we're not careful. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I don't normally talk about diets, and it's yeah. not something I feel like I've studied particularly, but I have tried to be healthy. Um, I've also had mental health difficulties in the past and had therapy and things like that, which mm-hmm. is another side of it, and that's partly why I've, um, in fact, I only very recently saw a TED Talk that talked about how our diet impacts mental health to the point where they've done preliminary studies of um giving people supplements that are way higher than you'd ever get sort of over the counter and reducing symptoms of schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and like quite things that are quite seen as quite high up need medicating need Mm -hmm. a lot of therapy um and reducing those in children just in, in eight weeks from supplements from food supplements and again, they they haven't said which supplements because they're still really preliminarily right. finding this out. But it made me really consider whether or not I wanted to have that chocolate biscuit or take a multivitamin like, <laughs> or, or have some spinach with my dinner. Like It just right. made me have that consideration. Um, but yeah, I guess my curiosity is always based on trying to be the best self I can and help others do the same. I don't know why that drive is there, but it's always been there. Um, well, but think- that's what drives it. And it's it's interesting because you said before that you know you got a lot of childhood messages around your curiosity. So could could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So again, it's one of those things. I suppose I don't really think about logically, mm-hmm. um, but it, obviously you can't when it's your own childhood right. necessarily, easily. Um, but I was definitely I was encouraged to read, but mm-hmm. I was discouraged. I guess I was my my parents very much wanted me to do things that kept me quiet. So my mum mm. would always say, "Oh, go look it up in the dictionary," but she'd never go and look it up in the dictionary with me. Mm. And you know, n- n- no no worries, mum. But there is that sense of so when I met my partner, he said, "Oh, I, my mum would always just go and let's look that up, shall we?" So he was taught to be curious mm-hmm. through action. I was still allowed to be curious, but it was very much it had to be led by me. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, just things about the way where we lived and sort of safety and things like that. Oh, don't touch that. Or kind of a little bit kind of coddled and kept in cotton wool. Mm-hmm. Um, and was very much based on things being academic. And if it wasn't academically relevant, don't bother. Mm. So I still very much remember telling my granddad when I was 12, 13, 14, I'm going to have a PhD one day. And him saying, oh, okay, what do you want to do that then? I said, I don't know, but I'll have one. I might be 85 when I finish it, but I'm going to do one. <laughs> and he said, what's the point in that? Why would you do a PhD at 85? You're not going to get anything out of it then. And me not understanding, because to me, I want to know that I know stuff. And I want to feel that I understand how the world works. And I love studying. <laughs> and, and, you know, it, it's so... Indicative to me of the fact that we see education as a transaction. Mm. You know, you put in the effort and that's what you're paying, not on top of whatever financial cost there is. And then you need to get some kind of return on that investment. When there's something to be said for the joy of learning for the sake of learning. And if it happens to pay off somehow, great. And if not, the payoff may just be, I learned a lot. I was really fascinated by that. Now I know this thing and it may lead me to something else and it might not, but you know, I did the work. I got the degree. I wanted to do it. And I was curious about that. Yeah. We, we, we downgrade curiosity a whole lot. Don't we? (laughs) We don't, we don't pay for joy either. So that's, 
I hadn't quite thought of it like this, but when I think about so my business, I bought business training. Mm-hmm. And it was only when I became a business owner that I invested in life coaching for myself, because even coaches need coaches. Right. Um, because I felt like I would get a return on investment. Because mm-hmm. I'm putting, you know, this is so that I can build my business up, then I'll get a return on that. And it's only just now that I've thought, oh, yeah, before I had a business, I didn't do like life coaching. I do like a 20 quid online course for something, you know, but I wouldn't right. put proper, what I would call proper money in because there would be no return. Mm-hmm. Like I'd have no monetary return on it so I guess yeah I think that's very very true in terms of that's how we see it and again I still remember my dad saying oh how much were you when I got my first job how much will it be earning oh that's okay because you've got that with your degree that makes sense sort of thing I I heard something like that too (laughs) and I did my my master's in neuroscience when when I applied it was so that I could stay in the place I was living because it was in a student town in Brighton in the UK And I loved living there and I had friends living there and I had a spiritual community there and I didn't want to go home to, you know, we lived pretty much in the middle of nowhere. There was a bus an hour. You had to walk to get to the bus anyway. Mm-hmm. Like it was, I didn't live particularly close to anything. And so for me, I loved living in the city and having a bus outside my doorstep every three minutes and sure. wanted to stay. And I was told that if I, they would help me with the financial stuff, if I did something like a master's, that would be mm-hmm. considered appropriate so air quotes again so I did that and they said why have you picked neuroscience I said oh, I'm just interested in the brain and they said what can you do with a neuroscience degree and they said well <laughs> research I could do research I can do brain injury or I can do dementia they're pretty much the three kind of job paths mm-hmm. that you could do and the research would not be the kind of research that I wanted to do it would be focused a lot on like MRI scanners and um TN uh, TMRI and things like that some of the like medical esque side which is not my calling there's nothing wrong with it but it's not right. for me and I'm a bit squeamish as well which doesn't help <laughs> um so but they sort of said why are you doing that and actually I find that my neuroscience stuff is pretty much what I use every day in my life because I'm able to say to people this is why your habit isn't sticking this is why you're struggling so much to reinvent yourself because you're trying to change this this and this and your brain has this much of this chemical and this is your willpower and this is so I use it every day. I think it's it's more useful than my psychology degree, to be honest. But on paper, it's mm-hmm. useless. It's not accredited by any of the fancy people. It's not considered part of a medicine trajectory. It's not officially official by the British Psychological Society. Like, and yet yeah. neuroscience is such a hot thing now. Yeah. <laughs> to a degree yeah, that scares me a little bit. <laughs> I, think I think it's that sense that we have the tools inside us and none of us know how to use them. Right. And I think people have suddenly clicked that actually if we knew what our brain was doing when we're doing stuff, when we're thinking stuff, when we're feeling stuff, we could actually harness this power a lot easier. And that's pretty much what I now do. So my, my training's in cognitive behavioral therapy and we look at thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, and mm-hmm. physical sensations. And they're the four strands, as it were, that make up any situation. And actually knowing how the brain controls, impacts, affects all of those things because of what you do, what you eat, when you meditate, what you write, writing by hand versus typing mm-hmm. and the impact of different parts of your brain light up and the impact and the different ways that it strengthens and, and prunes different parts of, of your brain matter. Like, it's incredible that we don't know this stuff and we've been able to know it for so long. Like we've had the technology yeah, can you talk a little bit about the, that difference, writing by hand versus typing? Because now I'm curious, and I'm sure I won't be the only one. 
Yeah, um, I'm trying to think now because, again, I'm just pulling these random. This is the thing. I'm like a pub quiz of knowledge, <laughs> random studies, because they're the ones that I've remembered and used and used as examples. But so if you write something by hand, it actually. So when you do any action or think anything, it basically activates, lights up, puts mm-hmm. um, chemicals into certain parts of your brain. Mm-hmm. And your brain is split up into different areas. And different areas light up when you handwrite something versus you typing it. Even though you're using the same, even if you're using the same hand, you're typing the same sentence, you're thinking the same thing, it actually lights up completely separate. There's a couple that overlap, mm-hmm. like the language part, like the area of the language reading and understanding parts. But it, a lot of it's very different. Um, and even the what they've done is they found that if they compare people who only type and only write in like recall, in memory, in even like physical dexterity, they find differences. So is it, because I can hear the question now, is is there one that's better than another or are they just different enough that there's no, you know, ranking them? It's just that they do different things. In terms of if you are trying to get your, your right brain, your creativity, your curiosity, then handwriting is better. Hmm, interesting. I couldn't tell you the exact why of that, nor could any of the papers tell me the exact why of that. Because, again, a lot of the studies are we notice this correlation, we notice this difference, but they can't go through every possible hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you want to be more logical, typing is that more meth- methodical. I think partly because you have a map of, this is my theory, because you have a map of a keyboard mm-hmm. in your head and things like that. It's a little bit more logical when you're actually mm. transposing it. I suppose, whereas handwriting is, again, it's a very physical movement. It gets you into your body. Um, but, but again, this is just me theorizing. Right. But um, for sort of creativity, to do, I don't think, I think if you're doing maths puzzles on both, I think you probably get the same result. But mm-hmm. um, I do remember there being something about if there's that kind of left brain, right brain, sort of wanting to be logical versus wanting to be creative. Well, and there are exercises too that I've, you know, seen I can't remember the context off the top of my head now, but you know, where it's like, write this in your non-dominant hand. So yeah. I'm sure that that factors into that too. Yep. So the different, so you've got two hemispheres, so you've got mm-hmm. two, two halves of your brain and they are connected in the, in the middle via um, a load of wires basically that connect left to right. And that's known as the corpus callosum. And the more wires, the more connected they are, the more you can multitask essentially. Like you've got more channels for the signals to get through from left to right. So if you've only got like three bridges to cross a Mm -hmm. a river versus seven, you get more traffic going if you've got seven. Right. Makes sense. And women tend to have thicker corpus callosums, which is why they tend to be better stereotypically at Mm -hmm. multitasking. (laughs) Okay. So if you're writing in your non-dominant hand, which for most people, because I think there's there's still quite a stagger of right-handed versus Mm left-handed, I think left-handed still... Uh, less common so your language sides of your brain is in your left hemisphere which corresponds to your right hand and leg so the right side of your body that your right eye your right legs your right hands are on the left side of your brain and the left side of your body corresponds to um, a section on the right side of your brain so you can open someone's head up and touch the bit on the right hand side and find the bit that would be their hand, and it makes their left hand twitch. Okay. It sends that impulse through. If you So if you are a right-handed person, it will connect specifically to your left-sided 
left side of your brain, which is the more logical. It has all the language center in there. So if you're writing with a non-dominant hand, you will be lighting up sides, parts of the right hemisphere that you wouldn't otherwise be lighting up. Again, it's seen to be more creative and less logical as well. So I guess if you were looking for that creativity, intuition side, it would make sense. Again, mm-hmm. I don't know if there's any science behind that specifically, but it would at least make sense. Yeah, because I thought that I had heard a couple of years ago that that whole left brain logical, right brain more creative thing was not as not as well thought of anymore as it used to be. It's certainly not as clear cut. Um, I am definitely oversimplifying some of it. You're right. <laughs> I will hold my hands up to that. Yes, yeah, so that is definitely um, not as clear cut as it used to be, partly because we have the the connections mm-hmm. between the two and we know more about that now. So actually there isn't it's not like one side works and the other doesn't hear about it. Right. <laughs> we've got we've got the two sides that are always communicating with each other. That's how we breathe, that's how we that's how we mm-hmm. kind of keep keep alive. Um what I will say is that in most people, the, the language language is only in the left side. So you have um, two areas um, called Broca's area and Wernicke's area. And they are one is for comprehension and understanding of words. And the other is for like reading and writing of words, if I remember correctly. Um, and they are generally only in the left side of the brain. And where you have people who learn a second language, there is a very similar part is created in the right side. So people Ooh. who have got more a multilingual, bilingual or multilingual, I think they're fascinating because mm-hmm. their brains are actually physically different in structure because they are generally speaking, apart from those people who might have a, a brain abnormality of having it on the other side, generally speaking, your language is always on the left side of the language areas. Oh, that's really interesting. I would not have guessed that that would be the case. But I think that's also partly where the left logical came in is because there mm-hmm. are bits that are only in the left side and only in the right side. So I think that's that's partly where that's come from anyway. But yes, no, it's definitely not as clear cut as, yeah, that you can't be creative if you're using your left side of your brain at all. Right. Wow. That You're making me want to go haul out all of my high school French textbooks now. <laughs> <laughs> I can't comment. I took German. Like, must must go get it back because I want that part. In my isn't that crazy? Well, it's never too late as well. Like that's the other thing we know about. Um, so the way that our brain works, it is. So I'm I'm now thirty, and it's coming. It's basically when you hit about twenty five to thirty, you have lost over half of your the neurons that you're born with. Oh, Lordy. Or the, or the half. Oh. The, I think it goes up and then it goes back down. And I'm now at half. I've now lost half of them. Mm-hmm. And it will stay like this till I'm about 65. And then it will start to drop off again. Like it will drop a tiny bit before then, but not by not by half. Again. Mm-hmm. And it will pretty much go and, and it will never reach zero. Okay, well, that's comforting. <laughs> so there's that sense of you can be 95 and you can learn a new language. It will be harder for you. Your concentration and other things are going to mm-hmm. be more difficult. But you can still physically do it. Your brain will grow. So I think the other thing is about when you're choosing what you're doing in your life, when you're being curious, when you're fueled by that curiosity is actually you are physically changing your brain. Wow. Okay. I'm liking this. I'm telling myself right now that that means every time I do one of these podcasts, I'm changing my brain. I like that. (laughs) Yeah, technically. I mean, any time, any time that you're mel- you're mixing um, modalities as well. So, like, if I 
dance while I sing to music. Mm-hmm. I'm using the language part. I'm using the physical part. Um, and if I, I don't know, I'm counting the steps, like I'm literally making new connections between three areas of my brain. And so that means that you end up being able to use those areas more effectively or yeah, is that so, key, the, the basic idea? Yeah. So the basic idea is that um, cells that fire together wire together. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that anything that we do together will sort of almost make a little bond, mm-hmm. but it's going to do it together. So then you can, um, I don't know if you know Pavlov's dog um, mm-hmm. with the, the bell and the salivation. So right. he rang a bell every time they were fed. And then they, when he rang the bell, they just salivated, even though there was no food. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like that. So you can basically pair two things together. And then when one happens, the other will automatically do it. So if you're trying to start a habit where you floss after you brush your teeth, doing them together will mean that actually eventually you'll do your teeth and you'll floss without thinking about it um, and things like that. So it's really good for like habit formation. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, the more you use any of those neural pathways, so that anytime you do an action, you think a thought. So this is really interesting in like mental health and well-being and mm-hmm. thought challenging. Anytime you think a specific thought, it will strengthen whatever wire it is that is used, whichever connection for that. And the more something the wire is used, the more efficient it becomes. So it gets a little bit thicker, um, which again kind of almost means that more signal can get through. Mm -hmm. And it becomes coated in something called myelin sheath, which is, I kind of like thinking about it, like rather than going down the steps, it's like putting it on a slide. Mm -hmm. So it just makes it more efficient and quicker. Um, And then it does mean that when you stop doing that it takes longer for that um that to erode it takes longer for that habit to unform because mm-hmm. it's been formed so thoroughly and it has this myelin sheath around it so that seems like it works both ways right so that the bad habits that you formed are hard to get rid of for that reason just as you might want to form a good one so that you have that extra advantage a hundred percent and i do have a bit of a bugbear about the 30 days to a habit 40 days to a habit 28 days to a new habit thing I think it's 21 Mm. currently Um, (laughs) because one habit is not one wire so if you have a habit that is smoking there will be so many different areas of your brain that will have the receptors in it that nicotine will go into Um, if you want to to quit eating chocolate and you've got that sweet tooth and your body is telling you you're hungry and you're craving it and your stomach might be crazy. You know, there's so many different things that we cannot say that one habit mm-hmm. is the same as another. It's not the same to quit smoking as it is to start a daily journaling practice for three minutes. Yeah. And again, thinking about the brain areas, but also thinking about the amount of willpower it takes, how thoroughly um, sort of myelinated those, those, those wires are, how long you've been smoking versus, again, someone who's been smoking for 30 years versus someone who's only been smoking three weeks. Mm-hmm. The, the way the wires are going to be different and how how different it's going to be for them and equally we do know that some people have more receptors than others of certain types so um one of the theories with sort of uh, depression and anxiety is that there aren't as many serotonin receptors or it, the brain doesn't make enough serotonin to fill the receptors serotonin is your happy happy hormone as it were mm-hmm. um so it could be that actually someone who's smoked 30 years has 500 um uh receptors as it were little docking stations for the for the drug to go into and and make it feel happier mm-hmm. and someone else only has seven so again that's going to completely change how they change a habit so when they talk about oh you takes you 21 days to start a habit or stop a habit or it's never i don't think it's ever that simple mm-hmm. um 
equally knowing that we can be kind to ourselves when we don't make 21 days and it's done. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's the that's the key thing with the whole awareness piece, because awareness is a tool that I use, too. And it it definitely it makes such a huge difference, because if you don't know that and you're looking at, you know, the book that says stop smoking in 21 days and it's been 31 days and you still are smoking a couple cigarettes every day, you're just going to beat up on yourself. You're, you're not going to get it. You're going to think there's something horribly wrong with you and it's just going to make things worse rather than better. Yeah, and I think our, our quick fix culture that we, I think we've certainly had it all the time I've been alive, but I think it's been getting worse and worse. Mm -hmm. And social media is definitely, we, we anything we want, we can have instant gratification. Amazon can deliver the next morning, sometimes the same evening. Yes. <laughs> we, we live in this world where things happen so fast that if anything takes time, and again, all the success stories say, I lost eight pounds in a week. Like all the mm -hmm. success stories, everything that we are told and shown that is supposed to be proof of success or of doing well or of managing something, it's all quick. Mm -hmm. So when we do something that feels slow, when we feel like we're not making as much progress as we want, um, when I used to work um, in mental health, so I used to teach the cognitive behavioral therapy techniques to people who were depressed and anxious, mm -hmm. we would talk about lapses versus relapses, which is this idea that if you have a bad day, it doesn't mean your depression's come back. Like Ooh. there's this idea of progress being this perfect straight line and very quick. And actually progress is an up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, that's slowly going up. If you like take the average and step back, it is on the in, going the right direction. Mm -hmm. But you, you can have depression for 30 years and then have three weeks of feeling good and then one bad morning. That does not mean your depression is back because we all have a bad morning here mm. and there. And again, that's about understanding. It's about awareness. It's about being knowing yourself, knowing is this just a bad day? Is this how I felt before I had the depression when it was a bad day? Or is this something else? Or has something happened? Do I know why this has happened? Um, again, that kind of curiosity that we're not taught to ask the questions about. Not at all. Not at all. And and I'm curious too because you've you've at, you've mentioned this word twice now, and I I would love to know what you think about willpower. So willpower is one that I've actually just started researching just for my own interest because I've noticed that I'm thinking about it a lot, but mm -hmm. I don't certainly don't have all the answers at this point. But my understanding of willpower, um, particularly with ideas like decision fatigue, so the idea that the more decisions we have to make, it basically runs down our willpower. It's mm -hmm. like we get a set amount. Again, I'm not fully sure of the science on this one, but the under my understanding, certainly from the summaries I've read, is that we do, to some extent, have a set amount of willpower per day. And every time that we have to make a decision, it's drained. Every time we make a decision with more options, it's drained. So if you have to choose between two cereals or eight cereals, you're going to use more willpower choosing one cereal out of eight than one out of two. Ooh. Um, okay. So the idea that a lot of um, the sort of successful, again, air quotes, people, uh, Steve Jobs, Richard Branson, Bill Gates, they all have one uniform. They all just have an, um, an entire wardrobe of eight white shirts and eight pairs of trousers and eight pairs of black socks mm -hmm. um, or whatever. And that's, that is their thing. And they just get up and get dressed because it's one less decision for them to make so that they can make decisions on important things. Mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons why batch cooking is something that is recommended so often because, again, it, you don't need to worry about you can meal prep and batch cook and then you can know that Wednesday you're having pizza and you don't have to think, you don't have to consider it. And it does sound like from the research that there is this idea that 
willpower is a finite resource. Now, what I want to know is how we restore that, because I certainly can think of things in my day to day. So I think of energy um, and myself as a bit of a battery and what things drain my battery and what Mm -hmm. things recharge it. So you might have heard when I talk about this, I get a little bit faster. I speak a little (laughs) bit louder. I get really energized talking and and teaching and and sharing information and nerding out. That's just something that gives me energy. I will be a lot more energized after this conversation than I was before it. Mm -hmm. For me, I would think that would give me more willpower because I equate when I make the bad decisions, it's when I'm tired. Right. Like mentally tired energetically tired so for mm-hmm. me I, my, my theory I suppose is that what things in my day can improve and increase and re-top up that willpower because yes if I'm trying to eat healthy if I'm trying to go for a walk but it's not very nice outside um, there are certainly habits if I try and meditate I've done a meditation for today and it's coming up to 9 p.m <laughs> like there's that sense of all the things that we want to do in our day to lead a, a healthy life as it were then I would like to understand willpower a little bit more. Again, when I think about the books I could read and the studies I could read, they're all just snippets. Mm -hmm. So again, I know that only by reading all of them am I going to get a clear, holistic picture. And I'm not sure how much we know about willpower because very willpower itself is, is an abstract concept. It doesn't exist. It's like love Mm -hmm. or, or joy. It's not a thing you can hold, you can touch. It's not necessarily something you can measure. So I'm it's certainly intrigued to find out about it. And yeah, it's certainly on my list. But yeah, not sure just yet. Yeah, and we have so many cultural things around willpower. It's like, like, all you need is some willpower and you can leap that tall building in a single bound or you can, you know, stop smoking tomorrow or, or whatever. And And so I'm kind of fascinated by that, too. I feel like the actual thing, to whatever degree it, it exists, could be so different than what we've been told it is. Yeah. So I know that in a lot of um, theories and and even sort of when people are trying to explain studies and why they think they found they found motivation is linked to dopamine. So dopamine is our reward pathway. Anytime we get an accomplishment, anytime we are, it's one of the reasons people think that we need to praise our kids just for trying anything and everything, Mm -hmm. which I'm not 100 percent against. But I do think there are certain ways of doing it. Mm -hmm. But again, it's about getting that dopamine going. It's the same thing that happens when drug users use, when when anyone who's addicted to anything has that addiction, be that social media, be that alcohol. Um, Dopamine is the thing, is that kind of reward pathway. And there is that sense of in the scientific community that there is a link between motivation and dopamine. So I guess very much like people who are depressed don't have enough serotonin going around their body or their brain, then then I presume that people who are out of willpower may have a lower dopamine. But again, that's just me theorizing rather than right. <laughs> official studies. It's so interesting to think of it in terms of chemical reactions, though, because we don't usually do that. Yeah. Because we're not taught it in school. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Pretty much. And that's, again, it's just these things that you don't need to have a neuroscience degree in order to understand this stuff. Because I can literally say to you, well, if you're going to calorie count, which some people won't do because of their own stuff, I completely get that. But if you want to particularly feel fuller after meals, make a note how many calories, calories you've had and work out how many calories you need and watch it go up and you will feel fuller. You don't need to have a neuroscience degree to understand mm-hmm. that concept. 
it's only because I've done the degrees and I read the papers that I'm then able to go, oh, that's a lesson that could be applied to, to what I would say is normal people or right. normal situations. But again, the people who are doing the studies aren't being paid to share this information or can't be paid to do the research so that they can tell someone how to have a diet better. Mm-hmm. Maybe they are in advertising, I guess. But Well, yeah, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, the priority isn't to teach the general public how to use their body and mind efficiently. No. So that's why I'm here, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and you just used another word that, that is can be so charged for people, which is normal. Mm. I did air quote that one. I appreciate it. <laughs> it <wasn't video> with this. <laughs> yes. So, uh, yes, I would usually use the phrase typical or standard. But again, they're all full of the same thing. And I think, it, yeah, there's no such thing as normal. In that particular instance, what I mean is people who don't have a neuroscience degree. Mm-hmm. Right. People who aren't academically curious purely for academics, people who want to use this to actually make their life physically, mentally better. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is probably what I should have said. But normal is just much quicker. And, uh, oh, yeah. But it's also <laughs> it's a word we all get hung up on so easily. Yes. You know, I mean, just like I was saying before, if you don't have the awareness to know that your 21 day habit thing may not actually be 21 you're going to look at it and be like what's wrong with me I'm a weirdo I'm a freak I didn't manage to do this right I'm not normal there's something wrong and I'm not sure that normal really exists all that much it doesn't and our culture very much lists on that and I think again advertising is very much the way that we are spoken to and Mm -hmm. about is very much about you need to do that that's not normal Um, my other half actually is a a pediatrician so he's a, a child doctor Mm-hmm. And the amount of times that people will say to him, oh, is what my child doing normal? And it's like, I've read all the books and by two, they should be jumping or, or whatever. That's I don't know anything about pediatri- pediatrics, so if that's wrong, sorry. Um, but actually, what the, what the doctors all know is that between 18 months and 24 months is the time that that happens because every single human being on earth develops differently. Mm-hmm. Some talk before they walk, some walk before they talk. I swear my niece was almost standing up on my legs at about seven days old. I don't know how on earth she had so much strength in her legs. Oh, my goodness. But, yeah, there isn't, there isn't anything that we can say is normal. And as I say, like, there are women out there with thinner corpus callosums than men. It doesn't mean they're not a woman. It doesn't mean right. I think we are so caught up in black and white things. And the world has never been black and white. No. And, again, we're t- not taught how to deal with grey in... Right. School. The maths question is right or it's wrong. That philosophy yes. question, you either got the points you needed to say or you didn't. Even things like English essays, you either got the points or you didn't. Mm-hmm. Like even things that could be construed as, oh, there's no right or wrong. It's philosophy essay. You still get marks on it as to how good it is. Right. And, and you know, it's... <sighs> Because I, I want to say two things at the same time here. The first one is I feel like we get stuck in all this black and white because what we're taught to do is put labels on everything, Yeah. which is why we're saying, does this make you not a woman? Does this make you not normal? Does it does it make you whatever? But also, you know, I used to teach writing classes for English as a second language students, and mm-hmm. I I loved teaching. I loved working with my kids, and I went off and got my MFA in creative writing at Goddard College, which does not give number grades. 
you either had a successful semester or you had an unsuccessful semester. And the determination for that is that you you create your study plan at the beginning of the semester with your advisor. You decide what you want to learn and how you're going to learn it. And then you go off and you do the work and you send it in to your advisor through the course of the semester. And you have like this ongoing written dialogue about what's happening and is this working? And, you know, this book, I'm not quite sure I'm getting what I wanted out of this book. Is there something else you would recommend? You know, some, something like that. And then at the end of the semester, you do a self-evaluation and your advisor evaluates you. And then that's the determination of whether or not you had a successful semester or not. And the longer I was in this program, which was only a two-year program, so it was four semesters, the harder it got for me to give grades to my kids. Because Ooh. my whole concept of, you know, how much did you learn, you know, it it, it it didn't make sense in the regular numerical structure to me anymore because it was like, I could give you, I could give you a 95 on this paper, but what am I saying is the 5% that's, that's wrong. What's wrong with it. If, you know, if you always are an A student and you write brilliant papers and you waited until the last minute and you wrote another brilliant paper at 10 o'clock the night before it was due do you deserve an A as much as the kid who slaved over his paper, who usually gets a C and managed to do something better than what he normally does? Should that kid get the A instead? And and it, I just, I could not make my brain fit around all of that anymore. It did just did not make any sense to me. It was just like, I, I don't, I don't know what this means because it's a completely subjective thing. It's not like grading a math test where you can say you got eight out of 10 problems, right? Therefore you got an 80%. That's a B. Yeah. And, and it just, it, it forever shifted how I think about it, which makes the idea of ever teaching again, kind of daunting because how do I grade a kid? (laughs) But I love that. I, I love that idea that that even exists. The fact Mm -hmm. that's how your MFA did it. So firstly, I'm like, Oh, I want to do that. Yeah. Right. (laughs) And actually, yeah, so when I was at secondary school, we were, when they had parents evening or whatever, we were graded um, in two columns. We got a one to four for attainment and an A to D for effort. Mm. And I distinctly remember standing at my parents evening one year and my dad spoke to the teacher who was opposite and the teacher went, well, she's got a, a, a a three A or a two A. Like I see she's trying, but she's not really attaining. And my dad went, well, she's trying, she's trying her best. Like, mm, it's not good enough. Like, is there any point her even being in this class? Mm-hmm. And then going to another table where I got a one, whatever the opposite is, a one C. She's attaining fine, but you can see she's not trying. And my dad went, well, why should we bother trying? She's getting a one out of, she's getting top marks. Right. So who gives a toss how much effort she's putting in? And the right. teacher just looked gobsmacked. <laughs> That clearly wasn't the uh, point of that exercise, but that's how my dad saw it. Because again, I was growing up in a very academically, Mm -hmm. this is how success works. It doesn't matter how much effort you put in as long as you achieve. Um, And made me think about actually when I review books. So I remember when I first started reading books and just reviewing them on Goodreads and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Being thinking about it as, well, if this is a four out of five, what would be that one thing that would have made it a five out of five? So nowadays when I grade books, I grade them down, not up. Mm-hmm. because the idea of giving one star to a book doesn't make sense to me when someone puts some effort into it they've clearly thought about it right. I clearly picked up the book because they have an interest in it so why should they get anything less than a three even if it was poorly delivered and it didn't get what I wanted out of it mm-hmm. and they could have done something so the idea of grading down instead of up 
is something that I learned with like reviewing books and things. So yeah, it's definitely something I hadn't really thought about in terms of how much we, yeah, how we dictate that kind of success. Yeah, it's it's such a complicated thing because there are so many factors. And and I've thought, you know, oh, I could come up with a rubric and I'm going to grade you on this point and here's what a you know three points is and two points is and one point. But even that doesn't cover everything. And so, actually, I do remember another either a study or like a story that was about someone um, saying, right, okay, you'll all get the same grade. I'm going to grade you all the same. And at the beginning, they were all getting Bs because the A students were kind of keeping it afloat. And by the end, they all got Fs because actually the, the, will, the will to try had dropped. So that was one of the reasons that they that said that we need in society people who are higher and lower sort of socioeconomic background and things like that. Um, but thinking about it in terms of if there weren't any grades, what would we do or what would this look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Because again, you'd say, well, how much have you learned this semester? But again, you'd have to know exactly how much each child learned, how much time they put into it, how much right. they got the concepts, whether they were someone like me who could get a concept quickly or someone like my friend who really couldn't get a concept quickly. She needed a bit longer to learn the foundations. Mm-hmm. Didn't mean she was any less smart than me. She right. just took longer. And she so probably was better than you at something else. Yeah. So I guess if you've got a semester and you're trying to grade me and her on the same thing, that's not fair. Right. Which is part of what I loved about how Goddard does this. It's like, Mm. did you accomplish what you set out to do? If you did, then well done you. Move along to the next semester. If you didn't, then uh (laughs) uh-oh. But but yeah. And and I mean, it, it doesn't it doesn't scale easily to, you know, a large school or, or something like that. So I, I don't know, but it does make me wonder, just as we're talking, you know, we're, we're so trained by grades to assess ourselves. Maybe that's where some of this obsession with normal and, and all the other labels comes from. It's like, I have to, I have to get, you know, straight A's because my parents want me to get straight A's in school and it's not good enough if I don't get a straight A. Um, but but then once you get out of school, what does that mean? What does that what does that do to you as opposed to, oh, you know, I got three A's and a B and that's cool. Yeah. I mean, and what when you're told about when, that. When people hear that I've got a, a master's in cognitive neuroscience, they go, oh, you must be so smart. And I'm like, no, I'm a, I'm a B to C student. I was a B to C student. Um, I got four B's, three C's and two A's. Like, I'm very much a B student in mm-hmm. terms of my my grading. I'm not like the smartest. I mean, I've married a doctor. He got A's in everything, and I still look <laughs> in and go, "How nice to do that? You're weird." Um, <laughs> love him really, um, but there's that sense of yeah, like what it. And I see, I'm 30, and I still did you hear me? I just just realised that I sat there and went, "I'm a B student." I haven't been a B student. We haven't been, I haven't been graded in terms of B since I was in like college. Mm-hmm. Like, that was like three degrees ago. Right. <laughs> but I still think of myself as a B student. So that's yeah. interesting. I haven't Isn't quite it? noticed that till just now. But yeah, so that's, Isn't I think it? it has a massive impact in terms of what we think is capable, we're capable of. Right. Right. And it can be a self-fulfilling prophecy one way or another too, which is one of the first things you learn as a teacher. It's a terrible oh. kind of power. Yes. But I do think the the idea of the self-fulfilling prophecy, once we know a little bit more about it, and it can be a positive in terms of once you know that that's how the human brain works, we can actually do the opposite. Right. Right. So in terms of, I suppose, for myself, thinking of me as a B student when I got a C, 
and being like, well, I'm a B student versus when I got an A, but I'm a B student. Mm-hmm. There's that, there's that kind of, there's both sides of it a little bit. And I do think that harnessing what we want to be, like you said, it's like, there's that awareness. But there's also that kind of idea of, well, well, who am I and what do I do and what's my mm-hmm. identity and what do I want to embrace? And then making that my self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. Right. And, and teachers and parents have so much more power than they realize, you know, I mean, they can, they can enact the self-fulfilling prophecy that does make the kid an a, a straight A student, or, you know, you, you tell a kid that they're stupid, they're gonna believe you. Yeah. You know, but the same thing happens if you tell them they're smart. Yeah. And again, in this day and age, I think, particularly having watched the last 20 years or so, where we've gone from almost people getting badges for being the loser mm-hmm. like they get like the award for becoming last participation badges when they you kind of degrade mm-hmm. what an award is right then it actually makes the people at the top suffer and i think that we we're starting to come back down from that again um in terms of certainly in england and, and the education culture so I, i've worked with children and families since 2012 in mm-hmm. my day job um as a support worker so i've certainly seen some of the fulfilling prophecies, some of the ways that parents aren't equipped to know what they're saying out loud. So that's another thing I'm quite big on is language and how we word things um, in terms of our self-talk mm-hmm. and talking about what, what we can do. So like you say, like calling your kids stupid is never going to benefit anyone. Nope. And I completely appreciate that if you're having a bad day and you're annoyed and you're trying to express that annoyance and you don't understand why your kid just did something that really was quite silly equally saying that out loud to them and the impact that has um I just, again we, we're not taught how much we shape our world right. and how much our perception um so i use the phrase redefinition but there's that sense of you can look at the same truth through two lenses mm-hmm. and if one lens if the only thing that changes is that in one lens i'm really annoyed and in the other i'm quite okay why don't i pick the one that makes me okay like I'm never going to get the truth, you know, right. So, particularly like in road rage. So um, I always, if someone cuts me up or something, I will do the, oh my God, I nearly died or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then I will do, maybe they were driving to the hospital because someone they love is dying. Now the chance of every single driver who cut me up <laughs> last week going out on that road, having, in being in that situation, it's quite slim. But right. you know what? The only thing that changed is I wasn't angry and upset anymore. Mm-hmm. So I do that every single time because I have the power to change that. And then I come through the door after work and I'm not in a bad mood and I'm not ranting and raving about that person who nearly killed me and ruining my partner's day (laughs) on top of it. So I think sometimes it's about actually thinking about how much power we have. Again, we're not taught this in school about actually you can control some of it. You can't control everything. I'm not one of those people who says, oh, you brought this on yourself. We make our reality like to that extent. But there are certainly some things we can do around, can Mm -hmm. I make myself feel better in this five minutes? Does this matter? Right. Right. So we don't have a whole lot of time left, but I do want to ask about the quantum mechanics part of the work you did, because I'm just fascinated to hear what what you discovered. And I, I just I don't know why, but I have this feeling that there's probably some spiritual something involved with it. I could be wrong, but I'm I'm so curious. I just have to ask. I, I love that you've just said that because you have set it up perfectly. Um, so although the course was quite generic, we did a project, like a little like essay 
And mm. I focused on what the evidence from the theories of quantum mechanics and quantum particles show us about energy healing. Ooh. <laughs> so when you mentioned spiritual, I was like, well, there is some of that. So um, I'm, I'm actually attuned in Reiki, which is uh, an energy healing art, I mm. guess. I can't say how much I believe in it with my own scientific brain, but I can say that when my friend used it on me when I was ill, I felt something, something mm -hmm. happened, and I went and got attuned, and I feel like there's something. I don't know how it works. It's magic as far as I'm concerned. Um, but I basically then tried to look up the information of, well, if people are saying, there's all these different like ideas that energy healing is real, some people go as far back as to say Jesus's miracles, things like that. Mm -hmm. Like there's all these kind of stories all over the world, all different cultures of healing arts through just people and laying on of hands is a common one. And when considering how energy is part of every single um, atom or every single um, even quarks, which so in, in each atom, you've got protons, neutrons mm -hmm. um, in the middle and then electrons are on the outside. And inside your protons and neutrons, your quarks. So they are like the, the fundamental particles, as it were. So um, two ups and a down makes a proton and two downs and an up makes a neutron. You don't need to know this. This is just me wobbling. <laughs> um, but um, essentially, the energy that you have in that and the, the in the atoms of this table are the same as the energy in the atom of that little signal going along a wire in my head. Okay. So if I have a brain made of atoms that has a consciousness, I'm conscious, I think. I don't I I I see the world, I perceive it, I have thoughts. Why do we think that tables and trees and the air we breathe doesn't have a consciousness okay and the idea so it's known as um the field um there's a book by lynn mctaggart um who wrote the field that mm -hmm. talks about how all atoms technically could have a joined consciousness and apparently this is what a lot of theories say that we when we if if energy healing is real it is our the atoms of us interacting with the atoms of the air and the world and and making it some kind of connection that will with with intention to heal because the body heals itself the whole point of, of our body if you know if you get a cut over time mm -hmm. your skin will heal it will scab like our body is meant to heal like that's that's what it does if it's injured and the idea is that by using things like laying on of hands is that you can almost speed that up with your intention moving these these atoms next to those atoms mm -hmm. because and again, it's not something scientifically proven. It's not something, but looking at the amount of different ideas um, and thinking about things like the placebo effect. So that is a mental, purely conscious idea that this will help me and feeling better afterwards, even if proof is it was water or a sugar pill mm -hmm. or if the placebo effect is something. And I use the placebo effect a lot with my own thing. I think, do you know what? This is, I don't know if this is going to help me, but I'm going to take it anyway and say that it does. Mm hmm. There's no harm in me trying that. <laughs> right. So I think, and um, so in a couple of the resources I use, so um, Bruce Lipton wrote something called uh, The Biology of Belief, mm -hmm. which again talks about it. So there's a lot of these theories that come together. And I think I was trying to, I can't say I found a very clear answer, but I was trying to understand that if we're all connected, if if the world does work in this way, then what other things don't we know about? Yeah. And what we've essentially learned about atoms and, and about quantum level is that there's more. So it used to be 
Um, so an atom, the idea is that you can't split it. Mm-hmm. That's the, the word atomitus or atomius or whatever means can't split, I think. And then we found that there are protons and neutrons inside it. And now we go inside protons and neutrons and find quarks. And there are six different types of quark so that, that make up different things. So there's this sense of there's so much we don't know. Magnetism used to be seen as magic. Mm-hmm. And then we got the science behind it. So I think with quantum mechanics, what I saw was that idea of in time, we may actually understand so many things that we don't now. And the way that like MRI scanners in hospitals work is through the things we've discovered through quantum mechanics and CAT scanners and things like that. They're they're from some of the things we've discovered. So it's all just part of that curiosity about the world and how everything works. Well, we've come full circle then, because that's pretty much where we started here, which is great. But I'm I'm fascinated by that. I'm, I'm thinking of that Arthur C. Clarke quote about how any significantly advanced technology, or sufficiently, I think, is indistinguishable from magic. And I think that's, that's right yeah. where that is. Wow. Well, thank you. This has been such a fun time. This is it's such interesting great. stuff. <laughs> Oh, I, lo- I just love learning out about it, and particularly with like education and stuff. Like that's, I think that's that's the heart of it, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. That's our show for this week. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks again to Katie Roseby. Check out the show notes for this episode at fycuriosity.com, and please do leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps me reach new listeners. Thanks. You can find show notes, the six creative beliefs that are screwing you up, and more at fycuriosity.com. I'd also love for you to join the conversation on Instagram. You'll find me at fycuriosity. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDay. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. See you next time.